For those of you following along today in your Bible, uh, Ezra 5, we heard it. That's the background of what we're going to do this morning. Uh, If you're looking for a place to open your Bible to or scroll your thumb to, Haggai. Everybody hear me? Haggai. It's that well-worn part of the minor prophets in your Bible if you're looking for it. It's one of, this is one of these fun sermon series where we're going over things that, for a lot of us, is, it's kind of unfamiliar territory. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. If you want to get really wild later, you could read that. But let's reorient ourselves, because we took a break last week from Ezra. We're coming back to it. We were in Pentecost last week. We will bring up the Holy Spirit today, uh, but let's talk Ezra here. We heard this in Ezra 5, kind of a report of what was going on with the rebuilding of the temple. It was Israel, it was actually Judah, the southern kingdom's chronic disobedience that had caused exile. Uh, That was the consequence of their generation upon generation disobedience to God and unfaithfulness. Uh, They had forgotten God in the process, essentially, and been unfaithful, but God had never forgotten them. And aren't we thankful that we have a God that doesn't forget us? Aren't we thankful that we got, have a God who is faithful? Now, we ought, ought to recognize that when it comes to consequences that would be negative because of negative action, unfaithfulness, God is very faithful to the promises of fulfilling those and allowing the consequences to be fulfilled. But when it comes to the positive consequences and the hope that we have, if we lean that way in obedience, God is faithful there too. So we recognize God's faithfulness works both ways. The overarching thing that we've looked at in this series is the issue of leaning into God's faithfulness through our own obedience. God's called us to be holy. God gives us the ability to be holy. We recognize through the power of Jesus Christ, are we obedient to that task and to all that God has called us to be and who God has called us to be? Let's look then at the historical sort of facts of the matter of Ezra moving up to chapter 5 so we can get ourselves oriented and then see what this has to say to us today. If we kind of look at the the facts of the matter, the historical situation, we can see that God had given Judah a second chance in allowing them to return back to the land. They'd been unfaithful. They'd faced the consequences. That was called exile. Now God's allowing people to return and rebuild. We might call that redemption. God's redeeming the moment for them. And as we said a couple weeks ago, and it'll still be our point today, never squander a second chance from God. Just never, ever squander a second chance from God. And we should recognize that we can see throughout the Old Testament God setting up sort of themes in real-world examples of, let's say, the exodus of God freeing his people and giving them a second chance. Or Ezra in freeing his people in their disobedience and their exile from the land and really from God, and giving them a second chance, we can see that we have lived in exile from God until Jesus Christ allows us to return into that relationship. And we are given redemption. So we should recognize that we're being given real-world examples of what God does through Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you feel in exile from God, wandering around, wanting that relationship, Jesus Christ is the way to that relationship. We want to recognize that clearly up front. That is our second chance from God. In the historical case of Ezra, though, what we see happening in this second chance is that they start by rebuilding the altar when they come back to the land. And so they check that off the list. There's faithfulness again to the law and the chance to make sacrifices of atonement so they can be right with God and faithful again and holy. 
They begin to establish and put down the foundation of the temple. The cornerstone is laid and they start putting the other pieces in place. And then they celebrate when they do that. So they don't celebrate at the completion of the temple. They're celebrating at the foundation of the temple, recognizing what God will do and the resources God has given them to fulfill that. Third thing they do as they've been let back into the land is they resume the feasts and the festivals that they're supposed to mark as God's people, remembering God's faithfulness in those moments. And those are community feasts. They're supposed to mark God's goodness to them through the Exodus and other experiences and God's bounty in the land. So they're checking these things off their list, putting things back together and in place so that they can be faithful and obedient to God and God's call on them in the land. But what happens, and we, Pastor Jody was preaching on this two weeks ago, and we're still in the same part of the story in chapter 5, is that opposition has now stopped them in the process of putting things back together. So they get this. In Ezra 4, they have people that were already in the land when these people returned. About 50,000 or so came back from the 800-mile journey from Persia came back to the land, and some people offer, we'll help the people that were already there, but it turns out they weren't friends but foes. And so those who had returned, the exiles who had returned, say, no, we can do this on our own. God has commissioned us to do this on our own. And then this opposition, this letter is sent to King Artaxerxes that you can read in chapter 4, and we saw kind of a, a shorter version of it in chapter 5, that says, hey, these people shouldn't be doing this. Who authorized this? And that's where we find ourselves. And in chapter 4, verse 24, it'll come up on the screen for you. It says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second reign of Darius, king of Persia. For, to understand the time frame, you're talking about a 10-year window. They stopped and they're kind of done building the temple for roughly 10 years or so. And we need to ask a couple of questions here. Uh, you know, now they face opposition, so one of the questions we can ask is, did they stop because somebody physically came in and put guards up around the temple, or did they just get demoralized at this point and fearful and stop? The text doesn't really fully answer that question, but it's, it's I think, worth asking as we consider when opposition comes, what actually stops us when opposition comes to God's call on us? And the second thing we can ask, which we can answer, is what did they do with their time if they weren't building the temple? We'll come back to that. That's why we're bringing in Haggai this morning. But we can see in the text that what they needed to begin the work again, they needed direction from God again. They needed a word from the Lord to kind of kickstart them again, and they get that uh, through Zechariah and Haggai. They both have named books in the Bible. You can read what they say that informs this situation. In fact, I would commend you Read Haggai verses 1 through 3, or chapters 1 through 3. That's the whole book. You can read it in a very short sitting this afternoon, and you'll get an idea of on the ground what's going on in the book of Ezra. They get prophets who give direction from the Lord, but more importantly, in the face of opposition, they don't just need direction. I've heard over my years of ministry plenty of people who say, if God would just give me a word on what to do next, often God has given us many words on what to do next and how to operate in this world. We need to trust in the power of the Lord to fulfill those, to fulfill that word in us. And that's really where they find themselves. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this as we move on to kind of how this 
relates to us today, the historical situation. When I was in 10th grade, uh, biology class, um, the teacher that I had would give pretests for all the tests that he gave. Uh, and there were about 30 questions, usually all multiple choice, A, B, C, and D. And it became evident by the time I took the second test, really, to me, that um, the pretest was the exact same thing as the test, same questions, same choices. He might just rearrange the test a little bit. So he gave you the test ahead of time. But as a not really rebellious 10th grader, but one who didn't want to put in the work at the time, I did not get an A on those first two pre-tests when we took them. And I'm thankful for my dad's intervention, who said, this is not the way to do this. You have the answers, you can study, and you can do well, so we're going to do this together. I'm thankful for that today. I, I wasn't as thankful in 10th grade. I'm thankful for that today. We've all been there, right? Happy Father's Day. I'm thankful for that. But I aced all the rest of them. But you know what? I still had classmates who didn't get B, C, or D. They got Fs. Even though we were given the answer. That almost takes work to get an F, doesn't it, at that point? Like, you almost have to work to get the wrong answer on everyone and not even get a D. They were given everything they needed to succeed. And they didn't. Ezra, they're given everything they need to succeed. They have some opposition. Will they succeed is the question. We can look at uh, what the church is given, and we are part of that story. Acts 1.8, we were celebrating Pentecost last week and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the people. Acts 1.8, Jesus' last words to the disciples, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Church, we have that power. Are we going to utilize the full power that we have is the question. And so we have to consider, if we look at the story of Ezra, and we kind of begin to tease that out at what it means for us as God's people, both as individuals and as the church, I think one thing that becomes evidently clear to me is, one, we are going to face opposition. It's going to happen. Jesus told us so. But it's very important, then, that our mission should always be clear and prioritized, both as an individual believer and as God's people. Our mission absolutely has to be clear and prioritized. What is the church's mission? Well, to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to go out and teach what Jesus taught. We heard it this morning in Matthew 24, the different way of Jesus phrasing it. When he's talking about the end of time, he says in verse 14 of, of chapter 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That's part of our job. That's the role of the church. We don't just worship God together. We need to do that and bring God glory as his people. But we do that as we preach to the rest of the world God's message that others would know salvation through Jesus Christ and kingdom life. That's our job. That's our clear and prioritized mission as God's people. Now, if we take that back to Ezra, what was uh, thinking of the mission at hand? What were the people doing in those 10 years when they faced opposition? This is where Haggai is helpful. 
So the word of the Lord comes through Haggai, starting in chapter 1, verse 2. And it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So let's make sure we hear that. The people are saying that. That's being recounted through the prophet. The people are saying the time has not yet come. They faced opposition. Now they're saying this. Verses 3 and beyond, it says, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. That first, that verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, is an excuse that they're giving. And I've heard it plenty of times, both in church life and in national life, and even in personal life, I need to take care of my house first before I can take care of anything else that's going on. And there are certainly times when that's true. I want to clearly acknowledge that. But I also want to point out in my experience, quite often that can be an easy excuse to not do more than take care of our own house. Quite often it can be an easy excuse because there's been mismanagement, we need to take care of that, but it becomes an issue of mismanagement, spiritual mismanagement or otherwise to continue in that path. We can, we must do things like take care of our own house. But it's usually a very narrow window and time frame for which that takes place. So what they're saying is true on the one hand, but at the same time, if you look at the context, the opposition is what's causing them to say it. They're afraid. The opposition either causes us sometimes to give up or dig in. And in this case, it caused them to give up. Why would we give up when opposition comes our way? Well, we could, we could start with simple reasons or excuses, whatever category you want to put them in. We don't have the fill-in-the-blank money, time, people, resources, facilities. We can do that in our own homes. We can do that in church life. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. We have to weigh those things out. We can say the other thing that sometimes people do. Uh, I don't want to. But frankly, quite often, we're driven by fear when opposition comes our way. We kinda, we are, we're opposed in the process of what we're supposed to do, and so we put up a barrier. And, and I want to just flag one of the typical ones that comes at us in church life. I want us to all say together, Terry's going to punch the button and it's going to come up here. Let's say it together. We've never done it that way before. Anybody heard that? Now, let's acknowledge a couple things. It can be very true. So let's start there. Let's also say this. Healthy organizations and healthy people analyze things. So when we're confronted with something like this, we should analyze, why are we saying that? Why are we coming up with this as our reason? When, when I was in my first church that I served, uh, that was two churches ago, I was an intern for two years. I had signed up for two years as a youth intern. Um, and I remember... About a year into that, almost to the day, I got a job opportunity from another church looking for a youth pastor. And I thought I was conflicted because it was a church I knew. It was a church I was interested in. It was a role I was interested in. But I had committed to another year. And so I went to the lead pastor and I said, okay, I got an opportunity. They want a call back. What do I do? What would you do? And he said, 
Well, I'll give you advice I got early on in my ministry. Pursue it. Because it's either going to do one of two things. It's either going to say, you know what, God actually has called me to this position, or it's going to say, no, it's going to reinforce that this is where God has called you. It's going to do one of those two things. There's no harm in pursuing something like that. Then you can weigh it out. Analyze it first. Turns out it wasn't the right role at the right time. But pursuing it allowed me to figure that out. There may be good reasons why we would say this. We might have a whole list, 12, more, more reasons why we would do something, but we won't know that until we analyze why and stop and analyze things. Because sometimes things change and sometimes it's time to analyze those things, but analysis should never be scary. And we shouldn't be driven by fear in those moments, right? When we face opposition, we can be driven by fear, and sometimes it's things like fear of being wrong, fear of the unknown. It can be fear of authority and powerful people. That's what they're dealing with in Ezra. They're afraid of what the authorities can do in this case. It can be fear of offending others. It can be fear of loss. But one thing we should be afraid of, if we have a clear mission and opposition comes, is we should be fear of repeating past failures which is actually the danger that they're getting close to and they're starting to fall into. The king said no. Whatever their reasoning, they step back from doing what they're asked and tasked to do and given the resources to do. And now they're tending their own houses and just doing that and going on minding their own business while the temple just sits there and ruins the thing they came back to fix and take care of. It seems safer, it seems easier, it seems more comfortable. But as you can see, when Haggai talks about it, he says, look, you're not comfortable doing any of this. You're just fooling yourselves. Yes, your houses need to be tended to. But at a certain point, you're not satisfied in the work. You're just going to keep filling your whole purse with holes in it. You're never going to get that satisfaction out of this because you're ignoring your primary responsibility by doing this. So when God offers redemption, a second chance, not only do we not want to squander that, we want to make sure we deal with the past appropriately too and make sure we don't repeat what happened in the past. If we go back to Ezra, one more verse from Ezra. Ezra 4, chapter 12, the original letter that was sent that's kind of recounted in chapter 5, it says something very important here. They write this letter to the king, Artaxerxes, and it says, the king should know that the people who come up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. So here's a question. Is any of that true? Yeah, all of it's true. They're not only rebuilding the walls, but they were a wicked and rebellious people. That's why they went into exile. They were not faithful, and all of a sudden now, by stepping back from what God has called them to, what are they going to be again? A wicked and rebellious people. They've got a second chance. Are they going to learn from the first chance? Are they going to learn from what happened the first time around, or are they just going to repeat the failures of the past? It's been said, and it's credited to just about everybody, including Einstein, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. They're kind of fulfilling that, aren't they? 
I want to uh, make one more point. I'm going to invite the band to come forward as I do that. I want to point out the title of the sermon, which is Opposition May Mean Opportunity. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. I don't want opposition any more than anybody else does. But Jesus told us that was a real probability in the Christian life. If we follow him, it may mean opportunity at times. Our leadership team has been reading through Craig Groeschel's book, It, recently, uh, about some leadership things, and it's very interesting, short, easy read. He's one of our covenant pastors of our largest covenant church. One of the things he talks about at one point, um, one of the things that they're known for, uh, Life Church is the church, is they're multi-site. They're at something like 30-some sites now, and, and so there's one preacher at one location, and everybody else is watching on the video screens the sermon. That's how they do it. They've been incredibly successful at it. But he talks about the birth of how that happened was a, uh, an oppositional moment, really. He says his wife was uh, just about to go into labor with their sixth child. Yes, they have six. And uh, so they, he finished their Saturday night services, and um, all of a sudden she goes into labor. They go to the hospital, and they realize this baby's not quite going to be there by the time the first service happens, and he's not going to be able to come there and preach. And he said, if I wanted to have a happy marriage, I was going to need to stay with her and not go and preach. And so he says, then they realized, we recorded all the messages. We recorded last night's message. Why don't we just play that this morning? Video services were born, he said, in that moment. What seemed like an oppositional moment, what seemed like something that was working against what we had planned, actually we took as an opportunity and a new pathway was forged. And now there are multiple sites. You may or may not like the way that they do it, but that's what happened in that moment. I want to suggest to us a way that we can then approach when opposition comes both in our personal life of faith and in our corporate life of faith with a couple words that we can say, and I want us to say them this morning, uh, because God is calling us to the primary mission of the church over and over again to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when God is calling, our best response is to say, yes, Lord. Can you say it with me? Yes, Lord. Try it one more time. Yes, Lord. I have people come in uh, to the office sometimes off the street. I've had this over the years. And they'll sometimes try and get me to validate things or, you know, have somebody wholly basically validate decisions in their life. But sometimes they kind of bring in stories along with that and they try and shock you with those. And you can practice this yes, Lord, in individual uh, conversations with people. So instead of putting up a barrier when somebody tries to, to push something new on you, you can say, tell me more. You can say, yes, and? And all of a sudden, you've disarmed whatever's coming your way that somebody's trying to put in there and shock you so that they can kind of get some leverage in the conversation or something like that. Just, okay, tell me more. That's what we're saying with yes, Lord. Tell me more, God. I am now open to what you have to tell me. When we say yes, Lord, we're doing a couple things. We're recognizing God's voice. We're giving acknowledgement that God is speaking and giving us direction. And we need to say yes, Lord, to the mission at all times and in all ways and prioritize that. We've discerned that our vision is to pray, grow, and go. We need to live into that deeply. We need to analyze ways that, that living as God's people doesn't work. Let me give you a, a one piece of analysis, and I want you to say yes, Lord, to it in your mind, or, or just tell me more as we say this now. 
But, but one thing we need to change in our own mindset if we have a family conversation about this is we need to stop thinking of ourselves as a family. Thank you. Not because family's a non-biblical image. It's a very biblical image, but we also flock is too. We don't use that. Body is. I use that a lot. And the reason is because we end up having a family reunion if we're not careful, and it's hard even though we can be very welcoming to allow other people to get in. If we acknowledge the reality of the fact that we live in a community where 52% of people have no religious affiliation, whatever, and we recognize the fishing hole is very big, we should be a lot bigger than we are. Not because we're interested in numbers, but because we've welcomed so many people in to this body of believers and recognize what God is doing and what God will do in their lives as we assimilate them into the life of the congregation. Of course we're a family, but the more we think about that, it's our greatest strength and our greatest liability all at the same time. We're the body of Christ, equipped to pray, grow, and go. And we're also, when we say, yes, Lord, we're expressing our trust in God's power. We're saying, yes, Lord, I know that you can do what you've called me to do. The problem in Ezra is not that they lacked resources. It's not that they lacked direction. They needed to trust the God who gave them that direction in their actions. That's what we're saying when we say, yes, Lord, we're saying, I trust you, God, and I prioritize what you've called me to. I recognize your voice, and I say yes. Let's pray together. Feel free to say yes, Lord, as we pray. Lord, let us never squander a second chance from you. Help us say yes, Lord. Lord, when what we expect is not reality, we say yes, Lord. We say what's next? Lord, when what you give seems beyond expectation, we say yes, Lord. What now? Father, when what you say or when what we experience shows opposition to what you've called us to and it stops us in our tracks, help us say yes, Lord. How? How do we keep going forward? When new opportunities come our way that we didn't expect, help us say yes, Lord. Where next? And Father, to your redemption through your Son, Jesus Christ, may we say, yes, Lord, how can I bless you now? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Amen.